0: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I'm sitting here with Anna Chizinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin, and once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski.
1: My fact this week is that in Singapore, pet fish have plastic surgeons.
2: <laughs> so do they, do they get a trout pout? Hey... Hi. Trout pout. Does anyone know that phrase? No, so I tru- do know that it's when is... you put a lot of stuff in your lips. Yeah, it's for having fillers in your lips. You get what is called a trout pout. So oh. it's actually a clever joke. So tell us about these fish, Anna.
1: Well, um, so <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> a great
3: start. <laughs> So what do you have done if you're a fish?
2: Well, like, you
1: don't. You first start. You don't have a trout pout because this one is, is a specific kind of fish, and it's the arowana fish, which yeah. isn't a trout. It's but actually
3: humans aren't trouts either, and we have trout pouts. <laughs> it's is really... weirder for us to get the trout pout than it is for the fish?
1: <laughs> All right, this fish is slightly closer to a trout than a human, but nonetheless, it's the arowana fish. It's a very prized fish as a pet in China and in other Asian countries, and including Singapore. And I read this article in the New York Times, which sort of profiled this guy called you Eugene Ng, who is one of the premier cosmetic surgeons for Asian fish in Singapore, he was described as. And yeah, he does them up. You get lots of things done. So they often get their eyelids raised. They've they've got droopy eyelids. He'll go into their eyelids and he'll take some of the tissue out and budge their eyeball further up into the socket. Yeah. It's it's a very exciting industry.
0: It's amazing. And he runs a fish shop, doesn't he? Like a pet shop where mm-hmm. you just buy them. So this is a guy who's either behind the counter selling you a goldfish or then going behind the scenes and cutting them well, up. What's and... the aim? What's the aim? To... Is it to make them look more attractive I... surely, to humans? If
3: he's selling them, he's yeah. making them look better. Yeah. I and guess so he's going to
0: sell them for more or sell more of them. He he says in in this article that Anna read. He says, "I know some people think it's cruel to the fish, but really, I'm doing it a favor because now because now the fish looks better and the owner will love it even more." Mm. Do you know it's
1: really weird to quote an article is an article that x read when x isn't you cuz you you've read the article as well presumably if you're quoting it. i think from he's it. only
3: read this paragraph <laughs> <laughs> i just read quotes
1: it makes it sound like i've just sent you a few choice quotes for the podcast i have to
2: say it is an extremely weird custom though it's it is extremely odd. weird
1: and i should say the person who sent me this was lauren who's one of the other elves i only remember ah. that this morning so she emailed this amazing article to me
2: Do you know what happens when you're a fish having an operation? What they do is they get anaesthetic water and they put the fish in a a bowl or a tank of anaesthetic water to knock it out. And then they pull it out of the tank, they put it on the slab to operate on it, and then you have to have one person on either side pushing syringes of water over the gills so it keeps breathing nicely. And then you have to have a third person who's refilling the syringes for the people who are blasting the fish. So it's wow. a massive operation. And then you have to have the surgeon.
0: Well, I, I read that it's not even just, it's not the anesthetic water uh, that you need for it. So I was reading about a goldfish called George who had a brain tumor and he was being operated on. And George, uh, when he was being when he was under, they took actual buckets of water from the pond that he was from so that it would be the natural water that mm. he was accustomed to and that was being splashed over his gills the whole time as well.
2: There's a fish which received a glass eye really? to stop other fish bullying it.
1: Uh, were they bullying it?
2: Yeah. They were attacking it in the water because it was a sign of weakness. Were
1: yeah. they really? Yeah. That's
2: what happens. George George was being bullied
3: but for having a fish. brain
2: tumour. Yeah, Fish could be so cruel. <laughs> <They are.
3: laughs> but don't you think you need to... They're kind of... Right. If you've got bullies... You don't deal with it by fixing the problem with the person who's being bullied. You speak to the bullies themselves and get them to change their you ways. You speak to the
1: bully's
2: parents, ideally.
1: Exactly. But yeah. what you're
3: doing, basically, is just saying that they're right to bully him, almost. That's true.
1: Yeah, And it's silly, this ideal of the perfect-looking fish we've raised up and we've tried to make everyone want to look like that. If you want to have droopy eyelids, I think you should be allowed to have droopy eyelids. And they're being made to feel like they can't.
3: I agree, <laughs> and because they were saying that these owners are going to love the fish even more because yeah. they're beautiful. I mean, that is pretty shallow, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it,
1: it is. It you shouldn't. Is. Yeah,
3: and I the agree. worst thing for a fish is shallowness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fish's <is> greatest fear.
3: <laughs> these
2: arowanas—they are so. They're amazing. They're amazing. They're
3: the best fish. They, even the droopy eyelid ones
2: they're so good so the people are obsessed with them there's, the, there's one guy in the article that Anna read and that Dan selectively read uh, he was <laughs> he was interviewed uh, he's called Nicholas Cheer and he has a fish tank which covers a third of his living room that is a big proportion but he said sometimes my wife complains that I neglect the children
3: because of the fish To a certain extent, yes, I guess that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, back in the 1970s, they weren't very popular at all, right? Mm. And what happened was they were just an ordinary fish that you would eat for food, but actually they weren't even that tasty, so people didn't really eat them much. But the thing is, it's an apex predator, it's slow reproducing, so the populations of it are very small, and so it ended up on the list of protected species, and that backfired because they became so rare that everyone wanted them.
1: Yeah, Mm. it's such a good example of how trends happen. It always happens in history, Mm. doesn't it? As soon as something becomes rare, like lobster used to be common and peasant food, and then suddenly it's rarer. And it's a prized commodity. And I think they've sort of back justified it now and said that they look a bit like dragons. So they're called Mm. long Yu, which is dragonfish in China. And it's because they have these kind of whiskers that I guess dragons also have whiskers. And also
3: they kind of swim up and down, don't they? Like an eel. But it's like one of those dragons Mm. in the New Year carnival. Yeah. And And they're they're very aggressive, Mm.
1: which dragons, I guess, are sometimes. Yeah, they're really aggressive and they've got terrible bites. Right. So
0: they're on the side of virtually every porcelain bowl that I would have eaten from as a child really? in Hong Kong. Yeah, it's a, it's that is a classic fish that you would have drawn on the side of a of a bowl.
1: Ah, yeah. And they've got like glittery sparkly scales, haven't they? And they get and they really focus on how to make them more attractive, not only with the plastic surgery, but they're often placed under neon pink tanning lights, and it's because they've got like a reddish hue and if you put them under the tanning lights they can go really pink. And they look nicer.
3: Mm. Doesn't sound healthy. They, don't,
2: they, they grow in the Amazon, don't they, as well? There are yeah. yeah. silver arowana fish in the Amazon. And they jump out of the water to catch prey. So some of them have been found with birds or bats in their stomach wow. after their death This is the cool thing though, some people believe that arowana fish will jump out of the fish tank to sacrifice their lives to warn owners about a bad business investment mm, So just yeah. as you're picking up the phone and thinking oh, I think I'm going to buy some of that stock today, the fish will smash out
3: of the water <laughs> and it'll, it'll, That doesn't uh, sound very true, does it? It doesn't sound very true. I would like to go in a business <laughs> deal with a person who believes that <laughs> <laughs> The, you were saying the silver arowana jumps hmm. out and eats bats. The golden arowana, apparently, it has been said, jumps out of the water and grabs small monkeys from overhanging branches
1: <laughs> wow. and eats the monkeys yeah they'll take anything snakes uh, any kind of small mammals and I watched this really horrible video because a lot of this information comes from this book that sounds amazing which is a woman called Emily Voigt wrote a book called The Dragon Behind the Glass and she obviously got really obsessed with these fish and uh, there's one line in her book where she says whatever you do don't look up YouTube videos of arowana fish dragging duckling underwater and what did you do? well I obviously did that (laughs) and I I honestly thought I might find it quite entertaining in a way and it was just extremely unpleasant so I know everyone going to now do this at home, but honestly, don't look up.
0: <laughs> what are you doing, the,
3: the is, is is like, It's like the movie The Ring,
0: isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, just uh, in China, um, I was reading about goldfish. Goldfish are meant to be yellowfish, really. Uh, it's Ooh. a breeding process that means that we have the more orangey colour. Um, this is a result of the Song Dynasty. In the Song Dynasty, yellow was the colour of the royal family. And so the empress uh, forbade anyone from having yellow fish if they were non-royal, because it would be a signal of having a posh fish. Uh, so they all had to go for the more orangey type, and that that was sort of bred and bred and bred, and that became the one that had sort of mutated oh, yeah. into, yeah, wow. the one I that we remember, know today. But I
3: remember reading once, and I don't know if this is true, that if you get a goldfish and just put it in the river, then it loses its goldness and it just becomes a fish. Really? What, just?
1: Yeah. They're not gold anyway, are they? They're orange. Yeah. It's oh, a yeah, very fish. different colour to gold.
3: Yeah.
2: It's
1: um, not
3: very different. <laughs> Oh, well, I've got a ring that you might want to find. <laughs> Fish in the background jumping out. Don't do it. <laughs>
1: um, just because uh, this yeah. is a fact about surgery on your pets. We've never mentioned <laughs> neuticles before. As a concept. Oh, yeah. But this is it's estimated that five hundred thousand dogs have had nuticles attached and these are fake testicles because when they get their their real testicles chopped off, they get very self conscious and they get bullied by their friends. Really? And so they get nuticles surgically attached, testicular implants. Um, they're, James really I...
2: they're really good actually. The the dog's bollocks. It's very yeah, very, very nice. Good. James yeah, and I have held one. Yeah. What? Yeah. Sorry, did you say you and James
0: have got them? No, we, we've <laughs> held one. Oh, sorry. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I was getting very badly bullied in the office.
0: <laughs> we have
3: they won an Ig Nobel Prize. Exactly.
0: Today. Mark Abrams of Ig Nobel, he was downstairs in the office with us and he pulled a dog's testicle out plastic Isn't, can you get a range of Mutical? sizes because
2: obviously dogs have different sized testicles don't they as in chihuahuas won't have the same size as great dane testicles right.
1: mm. but would it would be, be v- so it would be very
2: good. funny to fit a chihuahua with great dane <laughs> yeah, and vice versa actually
1: <laughs> yes it would be like a space hopper wouldn't it the chihuahua <laughs> that's true at that point
3: <laughs> two space hoppers
1: <laughs> yeah you say 500,000 dogs yeah that's huge half a million dogs but they get lots of plastic surgery they get tummy tucks that's apparently <laughs> quite common now and also um botox to perk to like uh, perk up their faces because you know those pug dogs with really pugs. saggy skin have become really popular but isn't that the
2: point of a pug yeah. no but they what would a pug look like with an entirely smooth face it would <laughs> look nightmare no but
0: they have been bred into they look like the
2: Roswell alien or
0: something <laughs> They've been bred into not being able to breathe, right? That's the, as in, they're they're just helping them.
2: I'm not saying the answer answer is more intervention, though, is it?
1: (laughs) No, this is what humans do. We make enormous mistakes, and then we make other enormous mistakes (laughs) to counteract the enormous mistakes we originally made. (laughs) Why couldn't we have left the dogs alone in the first
0: place? (laughs) Um, I just, this is, uh, I was looking into weird surgeries as well, um, and I left the animal uh, proper dog and fish animal world and went to the human animal world. Um, So just very quickly, this is off topic, but... Um, you know, you can get holiday boobs now, holiday breasts. No. Right. It's very. This is an interesting thing that's been happening in America. In New York, there's a plastic surgeon who's created a thing called the Insta-breast. And what it is is rather than giving you actual breast surgery, um, he gives you this sort of saline injection, which makes you have enhanced boobs for 24 hours. And then it goes away. The, the saline just sort of disappears and he's now developed and they're still running tests on it. Ones that you can use that will last two to three weeks for the time of a holiday. So you go away, you have your boobs done up and then by the time you get back, they sort of go back to the, what they were before.
3: Isn't that really wow. weird? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's going to catch on.
0: I don't, I don't, I don't, what, what he says is, it's for a lot of people who want to test the idea of having uh, breast implants rather mm. than having to do it. And often what they do is 3D models and so on. So oh. what it is, is, it's just a quick sort of go for a day of going, it, actually, I like this size. You do it
3: when you're on holiday so that your people at work don't see you looking mm. like that. It's like mm. if you try and grow a beard, you go on holiday for two weeks and you're like, oh, maybe I won't shave to see what I look like. Yeah. And then you always shave before you come back because you look like an idiot. (laughs) Is this man offering a holiday penis yet?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or holiday testicles, which are larger for the beach?
1: For bouncing around the beach.
0: Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that according to scientists, you're more likely to win the Tour de France if you are good looking.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a uh, Is it because
2: you are more streamlined with your cheekbones looking all nice like that? No,
3: because your cheekbones would be sticking out a bit more, wouldn't they? If you had a really thin face with no cheekbones, then actually you would be much more... Well, that is um, my idea
2: of beauty, James, actually. It's an extremely... Long nose, like like Concord. Yeah, a a head that's basically an arrow. An arrowhead. (laughs) It's
3: my idea of beauty, and no one can tell me off for it. Well, this study, it's like an average thing, right? They ask loads of people. So you would be an outlier in this case, I
0: think. Yeah, this was done by uh, Dr. Eric Postma. This was at the Institute of Evolutionary Biology in Zurich. It's the University of... Of Zurich, and um, he asked 800 participants to score the cyclists' attractiveness based on their facial appearances. If the person recognized who the cyclist was, like a uh, Lance Armstrong or Bradley Wiggins, they disqualified that. So it had to be people they didn't know. Um, they used 80 professional cyclists that they picked from, and uh, it was from the 2012 Tour de France uh, that they used the sample from. And the results showed that the top 10% of performers were rated on an average of 25% better looking than the latter. If that makes sense.
1: Oh, so better cyclists are more good looking even. So within the professional cyclists, the better yes, ones are more good looking. Yes.
0: It's only in professional
3: cyclists, I think.
1: Right. So we don't know if cyclists are more attractive than normal people. They might all be much uglier uh, than Have we you are. ever seen
3: a professional cyclist? Why do you think they cover themselves with helmets and sunglasses and things like that? <laughs> exactly. They're um, they're quite unusual looking. Like, it might be, you know, it might be your thing, Andy. Just I don't know. faces. They usually have very big heads and very tiny bodies. Yeah. <laughs> And, <laughs> yeah. But quite muscular legs. They're unusual looking, is all right. I'm Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Team Sky, when this happened in 2012, they all had to wear sunglasses in all the photos. Uh, and these were the photos that they used. And in that year, Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France. Right. And Mark Hamadish, I think, did pretty well in it. Um, but they couldn't use any of the pictures for this study because they were wearing sunglasses. Ah. So actually, the winner of the Tour de France in this study, Bradley Wiggins, was not part of the most attractive mm,
0: people. Right. Are they wearing the sunglasses to disguise the dilated pupils from all the doping they're doing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Sir Bradley Wiggins has ever
3: been found guilty of
0: doping.
2: Has he not yet? Okay. Yet. (laughs) Um, On doping, so I didn't know how ingrained the history was in cycling, but um, this is in the very early days of the Tour de France. Two brothers who were cycling in it, they boasted to a journalist, and I'm quoting here directly, they said, we've got cocaine to go in our eyes, chloroform for our gums, and do you want to see the pills? And I don't think it was banned back then.
1: No, what? it wasn't banned until the sixties. I don't think. Yeah.
2: Fifties or sixties. So it was a very exciting time.
1: Otherwise, that would have been an incredibly stupid thing to say to a journalist, wouldn't it?
0: <laughs> 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 but what was?
2: Like well, you've <laughs> taken a lot of cocaine, you do talk a lot, don't you? And you talk about yourself, don't you? Why do I think I'm doing so well? Well, let me tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> Riders were fine for being pushed along by spectators you would get a clandestine push along as you went along. And I can't imagine that really? did you a huge amount of good unless they ran with you, pushing you for a bit. Yeah. You get
3: pushing in the Tour de France now. You you just yeah. supportive pushing. So not by the crowd normally so let's say your bicycle breaks and yeah. you need to get a new one but you're on an uphill bit mm. then your mechanic will give you a push up the hill while you're going. Is that allowed? Ah. It's kind of allowed yeah as long as <laughs> you don't do it too much Okay. the other one as well like you might be getting a drink from the car yeah. and they will hand you the drink <laughs> and they'll hold on to it for like 10 seconds so they're pulling you along on the car and then you take it up. them That's that happens so funny. in every race wow. they, oh they,
1: they have sort of a second limit don't they yeah. on when you really do have to let go now
0: just on the topic of um, drugs being not a cheating, so even though you weren't sort of disqualified uh, for doing drugs, um, there was a lot of cheating that happened right on the very first Tour de France that ever happened. Uh, so there was the favourite who was who was said to be the greatest cyclist who was going to win, whose name I, I just can't pronounce, so I'm going to pretend we're mates, I'm just going to call him a nickname, Hippo. Um <laughs> He actually had to bow out uh, halfway through the very first one because he drank some lemonade from a crowd member, uh, had a sip, and then he had this huge indigestion, huge stomach problems, and thought he was poisoned. No one believed him, and they thought he was just a bit weak and he wasn't as good as he was. And it wasn't for years later that they actually traced it down and worked out it was, in fact, a spiked bit of lemonade. Um, and so he. How would you work that out? I, I know. The evidence must have gone by then. I know. Really? I, I have no idea. Maybe 20 they... years
1: later, this lemonade's really gone off. On. <laughs> <laughs> one day he got sick. But which
3: which um, tour is this?
0: This was about? the very first the one. First so this one. was in 1903. But yeah. then he came back in 1904 and he then himself then became the cheater because what he did was he was being towed by a car by using a sort of invisible string attached to a cork. No. He had the cork in between his teeth.
2: Why his teeth? Why not just hold the cork?
1: (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He was pulled by the mouth, uh, towed by the mouth, and uh, he was caught.
1: But in that race, a total of 29 people, I think, were disqualified largely for illegal use of cars and trains. (laughs) (laughs) They kept on... And even the guy, the four people who came first, second, third, and fourth were disqualified. And so the guy who was fifth, Henry Cornet, ended up winning... But even he had used a car for a bit of it yeah. and got a warning. <laughs> it's like he didn't use the car as badly <laughs> as the others.
3: But there was another guy who, um, one of the main guys, there was some contaminated food that he was given, which was a chicken leg containing a sleeping pill. Uh, and that <laughs> meant that he fell off his bike because he fell asleep on his bike. No. <laughs> wow. <laughs> There was a thing
2: about how badly all the teams behaved during the early tours. So this is from a book called Tour de France, A Cultural History by Christopher Thompson. I've read a bit of it. It's very good, very funny. In the 1920s, hotels complained that cyclists were using curtains in their rooms to wipe Vaseline off themselves after massages. And they were just horribly behaved all the way around the tour. Are
3: you not allowed to do that if you're in a hotel?
2: What, using the curtains to wipe Vaseline off
0: yourself? do not have towels. Did um, oh, they just do it to be rock and roll? I,
3: I mean, what a weird way to be rock and roll! I don't know what I'm Shall sure we that- throw this TV out of the window. No, I can't get a grip on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it hasn't been invented yet. It hasn't been- oh yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, but they kept stealing things as well. As they would cycle yeah. through towns, they would just swipe glasses of wine and baguettes off tables as they went. <laughs> so mm. all
3: the pubs would close um, whenever the tour was coming through. The pubs would close because they knew that the tour would just everyone get off the bike at the same time, run in, steal all the wine, and then go off again.
0: <laughs> well, the crazy. guy, yeah, the guy who won the second uh, the second Tour de France, Maurice Garin who himself was then caught for cheating he Hmm. was also part of cheating he was doing things like putting itching powder down the trousers of other (laughs) contestants Um,
3: I like that kind of cheating like if they did that kind of cheating these days rather than injecting steroids and stuff I think that would be more fun
1: yeah, definitely. Like
3: whoopee cushions and kind <laughs> of, you know, like... It doesn't slow you down, though, a whoopee cushion on a bike. No. The worst that happens is a bit of a
2: fart as you set off, <laughs> which will probably help you, actually, if the whoopee cushion is the right way around. I would put the whoopee cushion the other way around. Oh, yeah, so it blasts you Sorry, back down the mountain. Yeah, <laughs> I see.
1: Yeah, a very powerful whoopee cushion. I, I would just suggest upturned nails on the on the roads. <laughs> That's harsh, though, What about it? covering
2: like... an entire road in those plastic dirty Fidos so the cyclist has to go around them all?
1: What's a dirty finder? Oh,
2: come on. Is that a, a bad dog or something? Fake plastic dog poo. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking yeah, nice.
2: purely of Smiffy's Joke Shop level <laughs> pranks <laughs> but that you I can put. All
3: of those is right, isn't it? The Smiffy's Joke Shop. Like, you yeah. can put like a little hand buzzer on the handlebars. 100%. Or like the guy in the lead's got like a fake black eye because he's <laughs>
0: <laughs> looking a telescope. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the old classic off have some gum no it's a mouse trap. Uh, yeah. he won't be cycling for hours after that with his sore finger <laughs> this is the way to get people watching the Tour de France again right.
1: this is doping people <laughs> can get on board with
2: oh uh, and I see the rest of the peloton have cycled into the crudely drawn on tunnel on the side of the road
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh. you were in the middle of saying something Dan oh yeah uh <laughs>
0: Yeah, um it I It was, was about Morris Itching Powder. That's right. No he, um, he was the
1: guy who was beaten up. Was that yeah.
0: really? Okay, yeah. So um he uh, he Uh, Not in the Tour de France, but he once won a 24-hour race, um, and he credited the win to the amount of stuff that he was eating and drinking along the way. So we were talking about the fact they would stop off and drink wine and steal baguettes and stuff like that. The list that he said that he ate and drank during that 24-hour race was he had lots of red wine, eight cooked eggs, 19 litres of hot chocolate, a mixture of coffee and champagne, two kilograms of rice, seven litres of tea, 45 chicken cutlets... And oysters. He'd... Forty-five chicken cups, yeah, according to. I'm still stuck on the nineteen liters of hot chocolate.
1: Wait, well, that's in how long?
0: Twenty-four hours. There was a twenty-four-hour race that wait a he minute. did. yeah, Nineteen liters. No, what, wait, 19 nine right. liters.
1: Yeah, there's not time. And also, you have to leave hot chocolate for about twelve minutes to cool down <laughs> enough, so you don't burn your mouth.
0: It's
3: true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They do drink chocolate milk. In the Tour de France now mm. All of the teams do that It's amazing it's...
2: I, I occasionally go cycling And chocolate milk It just, it's, it just goes straight to your legs Yeah you, It's like when Popeye has a spinach Oh, cool That would have been a very bad health message though, wow. If Popeye would go around <laughs> guzzling chocolate milk
0: Well, so another thing he used to do Was smoke cigarettes And that's what a lot of the cyclists used to do as well And you can see these great photos Was it like
3: an exploding cigar? <laughs> <laughs>
0: What they used to do was, as they were approaching a massive hill, if they were in a group and they were with their team, they would all light up a cigarette or light one up and pass it round. So you can what? see photos of showing it. What they thought was is that it was opening up your lungs so that you could wow. um, climb the hill better. Wow, that better. is really not what happens.
1: Yeah. It's, it's almost the opposite. Although the smoke could obscure the vision of the people behind you. true. <laughs> working away. Yeah. That I liked, there's a guy called Bernard, well, it's clearly a French guy, so it's probably something like Bernard Innault but I'm going to say Bernard Hinault. Um, and he was cycling winning in the 80s and he had a champagne before he cycled up the last hill and won. Which I, I quite like that people were still doing it up until Actually, the yeah, I think day.
3: these days uh, I have a memory of um, the winners kind of going down in Paris having a glass of champagne. I think oh, that just really? happened. Cool. Because the final race is usually a bit of a procession. Mm. If you're winning in the penultimate race they will never overtake you in the last race. It's always like just a kind of a procession into Paris. And okay, oh. so I'm pretty sure they have gone with champagne. Cool. Maybe.
1: Fair enough. Can you explain this then, James? Because you do know it well. So apparently there's a gentleman's agreement in the Tour de France that you can take pause pipi, which yeah. are basically potty breaks, to stop, have a wee, get back on your bike, and the other people who are trying to beat you kind of have an understanding that they won't try and overtake you at that moment. Yeah, that is true. The fact
3: is you're on the road for hours and hours and hours on end and you're taking in lots of chocolate milk or, mm. you know, <laughs> whatever. And so you do need to stop and it's just like a, yeah. Yeah, well, there's...
1: hard luck. You get but overtaken. It,
3: makes, it does make sense because then you won't attack, you won't get attacked yeah. yourself. But the chivalry in, in cycling is quite good. Like even, for yeah. instance, if you're at the top, if you're the, in the lead... And let's say there's a crash and it's not really your fault, quite often the others will wait for you. Because oh, yeah, they want to beat you just by being better than you, not because of a bit yeah. of bad luck or whatever. And
2: through massive injections of banned substances. <laughs> Those are... that's, that's what chivalry is. Yeah. Isn't
3: it?
2: <laughs> Sir Lancelot found a crease in his armour and stabbed a massive syringe in it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My
2: fact is that in the 19th century, setting type for newspapers was a competitive sport. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so exciting. This was before they had the Tour de France, so you had to... They had to find their own entertainment somehow. <laughs> um, so setting type for newspapers is where you would have a massive bank of letters in front of you and they're all the moulds that you're using in a newspaper and you have to pluck them out by hand. You say, oh, we need a small E and then we need a big F and then we need a small so what, G. What, sorry, what word is that? <laughs> we're spending f <F-gert>, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And obviously you need it's all amazing, the It's amazing, sorry, and, that when you were trying yeah. to
1: come up with a random series of letters, you listed E, F and G, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs>
2: I don't know where my imagination comes from, but it's a, it's a gift.
3: Uh. So basically, you're writing out all the words that a newspaper needs to do, but you're doing it in physical blocks. Yeah, exactly. And then the printing press comes down and prints the newspaper. Is yeah, that right.
2: Exactly. So you make a full page of type, and it's it's incredibly you know hard physical work, and there's so much of it to do. Mm. Uh, so and this was you know pre mechanized typesetting. And it turned into a sport. And typesetters would turn up and compete against each other to audiences of hundreds or thousands as well. There were prizes of about $1,000, which was a six-month salary for a typesetter at the time, mm. which is pretty good. And um, they were judged on speed, so they were given a set passage to typeset. But then afterwards, there had to be proofreaders who would assess them for mistakes they'd made well, in their no, typesetting as well. was a
3: competitive proofreading as well.
2: How would you do competitive proofreading? You'd have to have more proofreaders. Yeah. Yes, you and would. then you, you're in a never-ending loop of competition. Then, <laughs> wow.
3: But being a typesetter was a pretty shit job, wasn't
2: it? It was very it was tough. tough.
3: Yeah. yeah. You would work from 1 p.m. to 4 a.m. Yep. every day. Um, the ventilation and the, and the fumes and everything were so bad that the average life expectancy in 1850 was 28 years of a typesetter. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: It yes, was yeah, rough. So Although th- there are kind of quite cool little details about doing it. So one of them is the origin of uppercase and lowercase is that they would keep all the different types in separate drawers. For each font, you'd have two drawers and the upper drawer or the uppercase was the one full of capital letters. And the lower mm. drawer, the lowercase was the lowercase. That's yeah. Good. It's quite nice. There's
3: loads of words, isn't there? That, that is what you see when you go on the Internet and you Google <laughs> typesetting facts. Yeah. It's mm. always like the word cliche comes from typesetting. Well, I, d- oh, I don't know right. that one.
1: It's like If you've used up all your type, yeah. uh, then you can't use it for anything else. So what you did was you used up all your type and then you made a mould out of it. And then you printed everything with that mould. And that mm. mould was called the st- the cliché or the stereotype. But something pointed out to me that mm. cliché is an onomatopoeia. Because cliché was actually the sound of the mould as it hit the molten metal. Oh, uh, was it? When it Wait, what essentials. are you using the mould for? So Sorry. basically
3: you've, you've done your type. Yeah, then you yeah, want yeah. to do a second page. So you oh, have yeah. to reuse all of these... Blocks? Is this right? Yeah. And so what you do is you take a mould of it and then you can reuse the blocks for the next page. Oh, I see. And that's your cliché or your stereotype. Ah, Yeah. And I think cliché
1: was used for um, images and stereotype was used for type. Oh, cool. But yeah, cliché, the sound that molten lead makes.
2: That's very cool. They needed so much of it as well. So a single newspaper needed about 50 to 100 hours of... Typesetting, and this is going very fast as well. This is sometimes they would do two things per second. You're constantly going back and forth to the cases, and it's all upside down and back to front as well. It's mm, another complication what? of the trade. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but as this as these competitions were happening, this was kind of a dying uh, game because it was replaced by a linotype or linotype. Mm. So it came from line of type, linotype. You would press a keyboard. You were just given a keyboard, and then as you pressed, you know, lowercase h, an individual letter would slide into place. And then when, you, when the line was finished, an operate, the operator would release some boiling lead, and that would make a single stick of metal for that whole line of type. So that became a much faster way of doing it. Hmm. And then that was replaced by computerized typesetting. And when that happened, the Guardian had a mock funeral for the old printing process. Really? Yeah, yeah this was in 1987. Wow. The printing union, they, they had a miniature coffin... <laughs> and the coffin has a plate on it saying R.I.P. the Guardian 1961 to 1987. And there were printers dressed as pallbearers in top hats and black tie. And there was a saxophone player. I have not worked out why. I think because it was 1987. <laughs> and the and that coffin, the mini coffin commemorating uh, Lenotype printing is now in the Guardian's archive. Really? Yeah. Wow. Oh,
1: so cool. So cool.
0: Well, I like as well that when you read the characters in the stories, um, they're often associated with a font that you know really well. So like uh, John Baskerville, for example, um, he's famous as a typographer, but he also created this font. So we have that today.
2: And then he was killed by that dog. So sad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a guy called William Caslon, uh, I quite like as well. He, he invented a typeface that was used on the Declaration of Independence and he was a British, uh, guy. So I quite like it's a British font. Certainly. That's good. What's the, was it what's he called? Uh, William Caslin. So I don't, Kaslan. yeah, oh. I haven't heard of that. So I don't think he made it into his There own were loads name. of those guys. There was Sir John Helvetica. Jeremiah Wingdings.
2: Yep. Lord (laughs) Arthur Comic Sans. (laughs) Double-barreled name, of course. Very posh. Uh,
1: (laughs) He was from the Berkshire Comic Sans, wasn't (laughs) he? Um so when all these new innovations come along people were often afraid it was going to put them out of work um, so for instance typesetters not really a thing anymore because we don't need them and similarly as the printing press got better and better and more automated it needed fewer workers and one of the major advances in the printing press was the steam printing press so it could get mm. run by steam this was invented in the early 1800s and the first place it was used was on the times and the times was managed by a guy called John Walter and he heard about this steam printing press invention and And he thought, I better introduce this into my factory because it seems amazing and it can do so much printing. But I can't tell the workers because they'll get really annoyed because it was like the age of luddism and, you know, workers fearing their jobs would be lost. So overnight, he secretly installed this steam printing press. He printed all of the day's papers overnight and all the workers arrived at work the next day. And he announced to them that their jobs were now redundant because he'd already done the paper. And he gave
3: them a newspaper with the headline, you're all fired.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is wow. so, so weird, Anna, because did you say that was The Times? Yeah. So that is literally exactly what happened in the 80s with Rupert Murdoch at The Times. What? Yeah, genuinely, because the printing unions had massive... Um, there were big uh, industrial disputes with the printing unions. They were constantly going on strike. They they were you know extremely well paid, and Murdoch wanted to smash the unions. So he had an entirely new newspaper printing plant set up in Wapping, outside Fleet Street, mm. set up all the computers there in secret, and then, bang, overnight moved there, and moved the times there. Yeah. And so, at a stroke, took away the power of the printing unions, which has course. not been the same sense.
0: I was looking into Victorian newspapers, and I found an account of a guy called At Digi Victorian. Uh, Dr. Bob Nicholson is his name. Okay. And he, set, he wrote a series of really fun tweets, which is, he said he'd just watched the new Dickens movie, and he's not usually bothered by inaccuracies in historical dramas, but politely requesting stop putting massive headlines on Victorian newspapers. Picture oh. of it's it's saying Dickens and, and it's a headline <laughs> that Dickens is holding. That is a terrible headline as well. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it depends what he's done. Yeah.
2: It doesn't tell you anything. That's what I mean. If he'd
3: put his dick in something. <laughs> that's quite
0: a good pun, actually. True. There were a few more lines on it. I mean, if uh, it was
2: called, what's the What's the dick in? Then I would be interested, because that's his pun on what the dickens. That's good. That would be a tabloidy way of doing it.
1: Yeah, that is
2: good.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Dickens
2: what? puts dick in chicken will be another... <laughs> Sorry, Dan, you were talking about a newspaper headline. There was more to the headline. It might have been... Okay. Yeah. It might have been Dickens puts Dickens chicken. I I haven't seen the new movie,
0: but... (laughs) (laughs) It could very well be that. Um, And uh, his point being that no newspapers back in Victorian times carried headlines. Not only did they not carry headlines, they didn't even carry news stories. All they carried was adverts. (laughs) The whole of the front page of all newspapers, or at least most of the newspapers back then, were densely packed with adverts. For, and, and when mm. you think about the printing process and you see a picture of it, it's tiny, mm. so tiny. You Just think, how, how is that possible?
1: Wait, but when um, you say, I mean, they did have news stories in, in the, the newspaper, but not yes. on the covers. No,
0: no. Yeah, yeah. So no headlines would ever appear there, but not even news would appear there. That was, that was never the thing. It was just yeah. purely adverts, which I didn't know. But there
2: were so many personal adverts as well. The, it, was, it was, you know, the Facebook, the Craigslist, the everything of its day. It was just the where the community yeah. exchanged all of its news and said, you know, has anyone seen my chicken?
0: Yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> Mr Dickens was hanging around the coop last night. I don't know where
0: it's gone. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James.
3: Okay, my fact this week is that Britain exports fresh air to China. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how we're going to get through Brexit, guys. (laughs) (laughs) We'll all be asphyxiating in five years' time because we've sold all the air. (laughs) Um, So basically, this is a thing which started off as a joke, and everyone would just kind of get fresh air from different countries and put it in jars and sell it to people. But more recently, it's become kind of a thing, and people in China like to get these jars of air, and obviously the pollution is terrible in China. Um, There's a firm called Ether. I think, or ETH Air. And they collect air from the UK countryside and sell it for £80 a jar. Mm. And it began as an enviro political artwork. Okay. Um, but now they say at the end of the day, we're a company selling fresh air to people who can afford it and anti pollution face masks to those who can't. Because
1: so they reinvest the money, don't they, in the face masks?
3: That's right, yeah. Mm. Oh.
1: It was really confusing when it was first set up. Because I remember it was about two years ago when that guy Leo de Watts first set up that company. Leo and- de
3: <laughs>
2: It's a dad (laughs) joke.
1: Yeah, But it's so weird. You should watch. Look up on YouTube the YouTube video of his team. So there are these two really posh (laughs) women. And it's never openly stated anywhere that it's a spoof, but it so obviously is. And you can see the comments below getting so agitated about how stupid they are. It's these two women absolutely taking the piss. And they've been really funny. So they prance around the countryside with these nets just leaping about, (laughs) netting air. And then they go up to a little jar. And then they thrust the net into the jar. And they talk about it so that, there's one woman who says the wind might pick up notes of grass or if you're near the sea some saltiness and then at the end they have about five jars and they say there's today's harvest and if they're only
3: getting five a day it's no wonder it's 80 pounds a pop that's true
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. very small yield <laughs>
3: Um, Sean Aaron, who's the director of the Canadian Respiratory Research Network, says this is unlikely to provide any health benefits. Clean air bottles is a gimmick, a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening, don't pay £80 pounds for fresh air. Unless you're very wealthy.
2: Yeah. You know, who are we to tell people how to spend their money? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah, it obviously. You don't
3: get a- rich in the first place if you're spending money on fresh air. No, can...
2: that's true. The, but the, trick, the yeah, But if you're selling it, you might do. Yeah. One of the things I found out from this just because it was about China's uh, problem with air pollution yeah. which China's taking massive steps to uh, deal with now is that um, Beijing is now on its 13th five-year plan. Did you know there are still five-year plans going? What? No, I didn't no. know that.
1: Yeah. Hang on, and it's actually done all 13 of them all the way through because Stalin didn't even get through his first one really, did he? I think
2: he? once you get to the end of the five years that's it, you've just finished the five-year plan. Yeah,
3: whether you actually get what you planned on exactly. that plan is over
2: it's a, you just have to have another plan right you can't extend mm. a five year plan to be a six year plan you okay. just start a new five year plan so did, are you just
1: saying that. that China's been around for <laughs> 65 years
2: yeah I am. <laughs> 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 no but they've had a new five year plan every five years That's it's amazing. a thing they've they keep they've kept doing is it? mm. and it's paying off
1: yeah they're doing okay aren't they yeah
2: not on a pollution level no but it gets called the airpocalypse
3: yes it's but coming, surely it mm. doesn't work in Chinese in mandarin does it can't do so why do they call it that
2: maybe it's us who
3: calls it that <laughs>
2: <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
3: there's a hotel called the Cordis
2: Hongqiao which has filters it filters all the air going into the hotel like an airplane all the windows are closed all the time and the air quality is 10 times better indoors so the hotel claims mm. than it is outdoors so, but yeah, it has to pass through two intensive filtering layers. Isn't mm. that crazy? Yeah. Because yeah. that's not a way of, uh, you can't do that for everybody. No. no. No.
1: You could get little helmets though. Like there has been a pushchair that's been developed for babies, which is basically that. But this is called the air shield. And it's a thing that creates a clean air microclimate inside a baby's pushchair. Why are the babies getting all the good stuff? Because they're innocent, James, unlike you. What? What have you heard? <laughs>
3: <laughs> what I'm saying is that technology surely can be slightly increased in size for people like me. Well, you why, would you, why do you want to be pushed around in a pushchair? That's crazy, James. <laughs> Look, you can't tell me what to do with my money.
1: <laughs> it doesn't go big enough for adult heads. It can only. F- no, I don't know. It's quite expensive at the moment, I think. But um, it is quite cool. It looks like an alien pod, and it's got a glass lid that protects them from UV rays, and then it's got a little speaker installed. Stored inside it so that the parent can chat to the baby still um, although-
2: <coughs> <laughs> but babies famously produce quite bad smells mm-hmm. so Julia there's a risk that you're locking them in with their own farts
1: you don't just leave them in there for five years <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a real very major problem, isn't it? Air, bad air quality in the world. And I think people are now trying to make face masks a bit trendy. Because, you know, mm. we're, we're used to seeing face masks. They all look the same, don't they? I guess they're black or white. But they've become, there are startups in China and in the US and in the UK that are designing pollution masks for up to $100 at the moment, but to try and make them cool. Can you get them to look
2: like
3: your own face so that no one knows you're wearing one of the masks? I think you could put like a moustache on there yeah. and then you can see if you look good in a beard and moustache without recognized. having to go on holiday
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they do extending face masks which can cover the breast area <laughs> or the penis area actually <laughs> so you can just try it out you know this thing about if you breathe in a, a lung full of air it'll contain some of Caesar's breath mm. there have been calculations done on
3: this and so the idea is he breathed out some molecules, yeah. and there's enough of them in all of the air that one of them will get into your breath, right? Exactly, oh, is yeah. that
0: what I always thought it was when he died, his his atoms are what are in the air, and that's what you're breathing in. There's oh, another thing
3: like that
2: as right, well. Okay. well. there will be, yeah, the carbon that makes up his body might be in hmm. carbon dioxide. But um, So there's a book called Caesar's Last Breath by an author called Sam Keane, and he says that there, every breath has about 25 sextillion gas molecules so, given the number of breaths you take over your life, the odds are that there will be a Caesar particle uh, in, any, in any breath you take. What about every move you make? Uh, yeah, <laughs> he'll be watching you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I took it a bit further, and I, 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 I looked up how much you fart every day, Okay. Right? Yeah. and you fart about three pints a
3: day. Right. Three pints. Mm. Three pints, yeah. Which yeah, should... but gas is kind of spread out, isn't it? It's oh, not, yes. It's not like if you <laughs> squash it down to a liquid, it would be a pint. Yes, okay, right. Yeah. So
2: I think I'm right in working this out, that at least twice a day you will breathe in a molecule
3: that sees farted out. Cool. I might, I might be wrong on the maths. Wow. So there's a company, or there was a company in 2016 that sold Shoreditch Air Oh. from the Shoreditch area of London, which is super trendy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was nineteen ninety nine each, so cheaper than the stuff that they were sending to China. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you could either get Shoreditch AM, which contains the notes of the night before, <laughs> or Shoreditch PM, which smells of rolled tobacco cigarettes,
0: pseudo philosophy, and hemp brewed beer. I think I might
2: pay the eighty quid actually for the more
0: expensive stuff. <laughs> <laughs> My family used to have a can of air. Did they? Yeah, we... um... There's a fire extinguisher, Dan. It's
2: completely different.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
1: Dan constantly with his mouth wrapped around the fire extinguisher in the morning.
2: (laughs) And then when that fire came, it wasn't funny anymore, was it? What's (laughs) happened to the big can of air? (laughs) Dan drank it. (laughs) (laughs) Just for anyone listening, I know a fire extinguisher is not a can of air, all right? I know it's more complicated than that. (laughs) If you blasted air on a fire, wouldn't it make the fire bigger? Oxygen, that would be. But there
3: is, you know... Yeah, yeah, like a... it's foam isn't. But it?
2: what does air contain? Oxygen. Yeah,
3: yeah. mostly nitrogen.
2: Anyway, like, and I'm you t- get nitrogen with fire extinguishers, don't you? That's cool. In fact, we've said before that packets of crisps are full of nitrogen, not oxygen. Oh, not air, rather, so that the crisps don't go off. It, could you theoretically put a fire out by opening a massive bag of crisps near it? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Anything wow. that deplaces the oxygen would do it. Well, I know what I'm going on Dragon's Den with. <laughs> that's
1: amazing.
2: This is a packet of crisps the size of a house. Just put, <laughs> open it slowly, and put the bag over the fire, and it's out.
1: Oh, but if you put it over the fire, then you've wasted the crisps, haven't you? Oh, no, no, true.
3: they're nicely char
2: grilled. These,
1: these
3: crisps are just potato, aren't they? They've not been cooked. Yes, but they're potatoes covered in oil. Wow. <laughs> so, oh.
0: This is the best idea anyone's ever had. <laughs> Is this why we never hear about a fire in a Walker's Crisps factory? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dan, I completely interrupted. It's pre-1997 handover Hong Kong air is what we had. So what they did in Hong Kong was they canned pre the the British mm. British air, as it were, in uh, Hong Kong. And wow. during the handover, lots of parties uh, that was there present to a lot of people that went to them. So for years, we had this can in the house. I don't know where it's gone. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I have one last thing, which is the band KISS, uh, if we're talking about selling air, they sell and they're making a lot of money off, you know air guitar? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. they sell strings for your air guitar <laughs> no they, way yeah and they package it up and they have a little you know like if you were buying something from a joke shop uh, it's it's got that little label <laughs> it says guaranteed uh, strong strings or whatever and yeah. it's yeah it's kids and they're making so much money off it when people go to their stores which they have in America uh, yeah I and mean, it's just a really good
3: idea it's a so. great uh, yeah mm-hmm. it's a
0: great novelty idea but they're making millions off selling air is what the article is saying like yeah. yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James. At James Harkin. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski.
1: You can email podcast at qi.com.
0: Yeah, or you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing. We also have a Facebook account, which is No Such Thing as a Fish. Or you can go to our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. We have links to all of our previous shows up there, links to our tickets, to our book, Everything is there. If we've done it, it's there. Go there. Okay, we'll be back again next week. We'll see you then. Goodbye.